This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Jim Himes represents Connecticut's 4th District in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he is serving his sixth term. He is a member of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and he is the ranking member of that committee's Strategic Technology and Advanced Research Subcommittee. Jim and I just sat down to talk about all things related to the intelligence community. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Congressman, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Michael. Delighted to be with you. So I just want to let my listeners know that we're going to take a one-week hiatus here in our National Security Issues series, quite frankly, because we had the opportunity to have Uh, you on the show, Congressman. So we'll continue with that series next week, but we're really lucky to have you with us. So I'd love, Congressman, to start with a little bit of your background. And maybe the first question is, why politics as a career choice? Yeah, great question. So, um, and and a particularly good question because I actually came to politics pretty pretty late in life. When I got elected in '08, I had never held elected office, um, and uh, uh, I'd been in business for 12 years. I'd worked in the nonprofit sector for five. But um, I, I think the the succinct an- answer to your question is that as interesting as business was, um, I've always been fascinated by the power of government to do good things when it does good things, but also, uh, and, and this will point us in the direction of an oversight conversation, but, but uh, you know, how severe the consequences can be also when, uh, when it gets things wrong. And I, I sort of always in the back of my mind, I thought, wow, I'd like to, like to be a part of that for a while. 
Yeah, I think you know government has um, has a potentially bigger impact, right? Than than individual nonprofits or NGOs, um, and that always kind of drew me as well to government. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, at some level, um, you know, the private sector can transform the uh, world through the development of technology, changes to consumer uh, uh, technology, that kind of thing. And of course, you know, academia is amazing too, right? I mean, ideas at the end of the day drive an awful lot of our history. But, you know, when it comes to in the 1960s, taking big strides to improving civil rights in this country, it, it is it takes the power and the pervasiveness of the federal government to make stuff like that happen. So then why an interest in national security? I know you grew up overseas. Um, was that part of it? or? Yeah, I, I, I think so. There's probably two things going on there. Um, number one, um, of all the places where government getting things right or wrong can matter on a day-to-day basis, uh, foreign policy and national security is uh, is one of them. Uh, we're, we're speaking very shortly after the anniversary yesterday of December 7th, 1941, right? There's an example right. of what right. happens when intelligence gets it wrong. And there's plenty of other examples, much more more contemporary. But then, of course, you know, at the end of the day, our country is an idea and it's an idea that we don't just want to keep to ourselves. Uh, It's an idea that we want other people around the world, uh, hopefully in a graceful way, but to be open to and to accept, you know, enlightened ideas of accountable government, of freedom of speech, of freedom of religion. The way we propagate those things um, is, I think, largely through our example, but also through thoughtful uh, foreign policy and thoughtful national security. And then why, why intelligence? Did you, did you ask to be on the committee or were you asked without showing interest? Why intelligence? I, I, I've, um, I, I asked, I asked actually for a number of years, um, before I was, uh, uh, appointed to the committee. Um, uh, Speaker Pelosi is, I think, very thoughtful and very careful about who, who she puts on that committee as, as she should be. Because as you know, you know, everything else we do around here, I sit on the financial services committee, everything else we do around here is subject to public scrutiny. When we're talking on the financial services uh, committee about uh, uh, derivatives. You know, there's a, a word that became very scary to the American public, you know, in 2009. Right, right. You know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, any number of academics, lots of people are scrutinizing what's happening in the world of derivatives. When we're talking about things like surveillance or counterterrorism policy or what our intelligence sources are in places like Russia and China, nobody gets to look at that except for, of course, a very small number of people in the executive branch who are doing it and a very, very small number of people in the in the Congress who are charged with making sure that those activities are consistent with our law and uh, just as importantly with our values. And that that feels like a real job, you know, and one of the things people in my if, if you're sort of restless as I am, one of the things that can be challenging about being in the Congress is that you spend a lot of time doing things, wondering if you're actually accomplishing stuff when you're performing oversight over. Um, you know, a lethal program or when you're trying to balance, you know, our surveillance needs against the protections that every American has, that feels like really important work. So this, this oversight role, I don't think people give enough credit to, right? These are at the end of the day, secret intelligence organizations operating in a democracy. And at the end of the day, the American people need to have confidence that they're operating effectively, they're using taxpayers' money wisely, and they're operating within the Constitution and the statutes of the United States. So this is really important stuff at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's important for reasons big and small. It's, uh, you know, the the big reason it's important is that in an open democracy, um, 
Secrets are hard, covert activity, stuff that the American electorate can't know about. Um, that's hard. That, that in some ways runs against the grain of the very concept of democracy, where the citizens who pay for those activities should know what they're paying for. Right. Uh, and they should have some confidence that, that it's both effective, um, but also consistent with their values. And so, yeah, really, really important. And it's, and, you know, it's reasons, it's, it's, it's important for uh, reasons that are maybe smaller than that overarching reason. I mean, I joined the committee literally two weeks before the Snowden disclosures. We could spend hours on that. But one thing that was true, um, and and I'm not a fan of of Snowden. I think there's lots of ways to raise your hand in a safe and, and comfortable way saying, I don't like what I'm seeing here. And he did not choose those ways. But um, to some extent, it was a failure of oversight, too, right? Because when people saw what Snowden revealed, there were a lot of folks that were pretty uncomfortable about what they saw. And a lot, certainly a lot of folks that were undereducated about what they saw. And that's a little bit of a failure of the Congress, because it's our job to go back to the American people and say, look, you know, we may not be able to tell you everything, but you should know that here are the broad parameters of what we're doing. And we think that it's either good or bad based on, you know, what we know. Yeah, do you think do you think the the folks that you deal with in the intelligence community understand the importance of oversight? And the reason I'm asking is because you know I sat in a lot of meetings in front of both uh, your committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee with intelligence officers who I saw being more careful with what they said to you all than what they said to a foreign intelligence service. Uh, that's interesting and, and and a little discouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Look, I can, yeah. I, I can understand. I, I, I can understand. There's lots of reasons why a senior intelligence officer would approach a congressional hearing very, very carefully. You know, obviously we control the purse strings. You know, we can raise hell in ways that that, that are really uncomfortable for the intelligence community. Uh, look, we're also notoriously talkative. We're not. We don't grow up in environments where we're told to keep quiet. Much the contrary. We 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 live in an environment where we told we're told to talk about what we know and what right. we do. So I right. get all of that. Um, but but to answer your question, I guess I'd say two things. Number one, I've never met uh, anybody in testimony who I didn't feel was committed to giving me the information that I sought. Um, I, and I, I get in the face of critics of the intelligence community. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes out there. These are cowboys. These are folks who want to operate on the edge of the law. No, 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 no. You know, there may be a few of those out there, but by and large, you know, these are people who are deeply patriotic, deeply steeped in con- the Constitution and the law. What is challenging, though, Michael, is um, I've noticed oversight is really hard for a whole bunch of reasons. One, it's what I call the little boy effect for starters. You know, I've, it's mm-hmm. not lost on me that, that the uh, intelligence community will often come into a hearing and they'll spend the first 30 minutes showing us really cool videos right, of, right. of what they're doing. Right. Well, right. you know what? Uh, and I hate to be gendered about this, but there's a little boy in all of us who are just like, oh, that's really cool. Well, OK, that's fun. That's not oversight. Um, you know, and then you have a challenge again when you get to know intelligence professionals, you get to know that they're incredibly committed and patriotic people, very thoughtful about the law, and that they put their lives at risk. And so you can't help be sort of consumed with your pride in what they do. That makes oversight hard, right? Because our job is not to be, you know, cheerleaders for the intelligence community, but to understand, you know, every once in a while to say, hey, this this isn't going to work. And I, you know, uh, I've always sort of believed that, that, yeah, show us the videos because they're pretty amazing, but start every hearing by telling us what's going wrong and what you're worried about. We don't do yeah. enough of that. So, Congressman, how do you think about and how do you prioritize the biggest threats to our national security? How do you think about that? 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it's a it's a really key oversight question, and it and it sort of starts with the fact that um, humans aren't good at thinking smart about risk because you're asking a risk question there, and you know right. the classic example is that you know everybody is terrified of flying, and you will not die on an airplane, statistically speaking. <laughs> Right. But nobody's terrified of the double bacon cheeseburger that most assuredly will kill you. Right. We're, 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 as humans, we're not very good at thinking smart about risk. And, you know, therefore, let me give you an example that I think is actually sort of topical. I was in lower Manhattan on on September 11th, 2001. And so mm-hmm. there are few people who sort of feel that event as much as I do. Um, and we, of course, reordered the United States government, our stru- our system of laws, uh, the you know our military we fought two wars um, to avert that happening again. Right. Uh, I'll remind you that there were three thousand fatalities, just shy of three thousand fatalities on nine eleven, and we've now I mean pick your number. People say it's in the many trillions of dollars that we have spent to address a threat that at the end of the day killed three thousand Americans. I think that next weekend there will be three hundred thousand dead Americans uh, as a result of the COVID virus. And if I'd said to you, Michael, two years ago, I can't tell you what it's going to be, but I can tell you that in December of 2020, we will be talking about something that just killed 300,000 Americans. You would sit up and you would have said, um, are we spending, you know, pick your number, $50 billion to avoid that happening. And so my my point is that we're sometimes not very smart about thinking uh, and, and sending resources to the areas that are truly a risk to the to the safety and soundness of our country. So when you think about the risk, you know, is it is it the rise of China that worries you the most? Is it the the technology battles that that are coming our way or that we're in the midst of? Or is it Russia, is it Iran, is it climate change, right? What 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 do you think we need to focus most on? I I let me start by answering that question tactically. As you might sense from my previous answer, um, I do think we've got work to do to shift resources and attention away from counterterrorism uh, towards um, the hard target threats, China in particular. Even as we are very, very careful not to think oversimplistically and say that China is a threat in the way terrorism was a threat or the way the Soviets were a threat or the way the Nazis were a threat that, you know, China is a unique challenge. Yes. You know, they hold a lot of our debt. Uh, We are huge trading partners. Um, They are a unique challenge in which intelligence plays a really important role. I think we have underinvested in the intelligence around China in particular. Um, but I think we've also underinvested just to get back to what we were just talking about here. I, I mean, what are the truly catastrophic events? What's the an- analogy to nuclear weaponry, right? Nuclear weaponry in 1945, um, I just wrote a report about this in my subcommittee, changed the United States government because President Roosevelt, on the advice of Albert Einstein, realized that if the Nazis beat us to a bomb, um, history would be radically different than we would want it to be. I don't know that we're in that world today, but we do. You asked about technology. We need to be make sure that we are at the forefront of biotechnology, where some really nasty stuff could come uh, out of things like um, quantum computing. That gets pretty technical and esoteric, but boy, we better be at the forefront of right. that. And while I think it's a mistake to use a race as an analogy to thinking about those things, let me do that anyway and just say, boy, we better, if we're not winning that race, we better be up in the pack. So Congressman, 
what what's the new leadership of the IC going to find when it gets into place? What will they find that's working well, and what will they find that needs some some adjustment, some fine tuning? Yeah, yeah, um, great, great question. Um, the the answer is very clear, which is that the intelligence community um, is about finding, conveying truth. Truth is sort of the wrong world right, word, right? Because the, n- never in the history of intelligence has somebody said, here's the truth. What they right. say is, you know, here's what we believe with a, with a high probability. Um, their chief customer, the president of the United States, for reasons that we see very literally every hour of every day on Twitter, is not interested in the truth. Um, and I know that sounds like a deeply partisan statement, but I will, you know, objectively speaking, this is not a president who highly values the truth. So there's a natural tension between the intelligence community's ingrained and sometimes difficult to maintain commitment to the truth. And a president who says, essentially, don't tell me the truth. Tell me what reinforces what I believe. Um, and so the new leadership um, is going to. And, and, and first of all, having new leadership is going to be a very big step in the right direction. And I think in the professional ranks, there are going to be very big sighs of relief. But there's also going to need to be a cultural reconstruction, right? I, I don't spend enough time inside the agencies to know how cultures subtly shifted in favor of managing the president or in favor of managing this or that DNI. But culture is really important. And the new team is going to need to go in and from, you know, the most senior professional right down to the new recruit is going to need to fumigate the place and create a culture, which is that, you know, we are professionals. And regardless of what the president wants or thinks he or she wants, um, we need to convey the truth and we need to be true. We need to be true to that process. That's going to be, that's going to be a challenge. And, you know, my, my sense is that if President Biden says and does the right things, and if the new leadership says and does the right things, accomplishing what you just said, I think is doable. You know, one of the things that I'm really worried about is because of President Trump's words and actions, there's a significant chunk of the population that uh, sees the intelligence community as part of the deep state, right? Sees the intelligence community not as, as defending the country, but as being being partisan, actually trying to undermine democracy, and how do we how do we change that mindset? Because that mindset doesn't go away when President Biden gets inaugurated on January twentieth. How do you think about that? Um, I'm not sure I know the prescription um, and how we fix that, but and I'll come back to that. But I do know the diagnosis. The problem in this country, from the standpoint of those who believe in the deep state. You know, and let's set aside bureaucratic inertia, right? Bureaucratic inertia is a thing, right? Um, let's 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 sort of examine this question of the deep state. There is no deep state in this country, but there is something that would look like the deep state to somebody who is a believer that the president should be all powerful and the president should be able to, uh, in a unitary way, do whatever he wants to do. So if you want to ban Muslims from coming into the country, and again, this is Donald Trump's words, not mine, or if you want to say, no, Congress, I am going to take money and build a wall, two things which are blatantly illegal, um, and the law stops you from doing that, and the law as executed by the Department of Homeland Security or the military or the CIA stops you from doing what you want to do, 
you might say, well, that's the deep state. Baloney. It's not the deep state. It is an attribute of a society in which there is the rule of law. The president doesn't get to override the rule of law, as this president has regularly wanted to do. Um, and so I understand where the idea that there is a deep state comes from, but it's not a deep state. Again, I've, I've mucked around in federal bureaucracies for 12 years now, and I've never met anybody who says my job now is to stop the will of the president of the United States. What they say is, I will abide by the law. And if you're Donald Trump or any of his minions, and sadly, there's a lot of minions out there, that feels like a deep state rebuke. Now, to your question, how do we change that? You know, all, all I can say is I, I, I take some solace in history. You know, when Joseph McCarthy was running rampant in this building, you know, and ruining people's careers, because when they were 19, they were a member of the Communist Party of the United States, he had a lot of support. Uh, he, cre he, he created fear throughout academia, through showbiz, you name it. Today, nobody stands up and says, yeah, I was a big supporter of Joseph McCarthy. I really wish we'd prevailed. I think time and the natural pragmatism of the American citizenry will erode this idea that there is this deep state that was out to thwart Donald Trump's will. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Congressman Jim Hines. Ah. <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So, Congressman, you're the, the chairman of the Subcommittee on Strategic Technology, and I'm wondering how you think about where the IC is on technology and how do we, how do we get the IC to the cutting edge of technology and how do we keep it there? How do you think about that? Yeah, great, great question. And um, my subcommittee wrote a report um, that I would commend to anybody who's interested in this um, that had a whole bunch of suggestions. But um, to answer your question quickly, how are we doing? Um, I think we're doing pretty well. You know, the innovation that happens inside places like MIT, Lincoln Labs, the innovation that happens inside DARPA and IARPA funded projects and, uh, you know, inside research centers and in American academia is really pretty good. And it's keeping us near the front of the pack on some things. But what's different is that, um, you know, we used to be the only people in the pack 30 years ago. Today, that's no longer true, right? Um, maybe even 30 years ago wasn't quite the right example because, of course, the Soviets were pretty good on technology. And if you were alive in the 50s, you remember Sputnik, right? Um, right. But, um, you know, we're still, we're still in really good shape, but we're no longer alone in the front of the pack. You know, the Chinese in some areas, the Russians and the Iranians and some of our antagonists are there. And by the way, so are our allies, right? Uh, you know, the Israelis with respect to things like, uh, you know, communication uh, hardware, um, um, are as good as they come. And so from a government standpoint, it's um, it's a really interesting question, right? Because the success model has always been that government does the basic research. You know, government doesn't necessarily come up, you know, it, government didn't invent the iPhone, right? But the, right. The, um, the semiconductor that runs the iPhone, the GPS system that, uh, that provides location services, Siri, a lot of the basic research was actually undertaken by a federal commitment in places like DARPA to that kind of research. And so we need to recommit to that. And then if you allow me to make one more point here too, there's a, there's a, a less intuitive point, which is 
where does how does technology technological innovation happen? Big conversation, but let me give you the 10 second answer. It happens in, envir in environments that are non-hierarchical, that are iconoclastic, in which people take huge risks. And if you think about those three things, non-hierarchical, iconoclastic, and where, a place where people take huge risks, I'm talking about everything that is not the government. Right? Mm, right. None of those are values of the government. And so we, we need to think about how, having our intelligence community in particular much more open um, to entrepreneurs in, in Palo Alto and Route 128, to being more open to going to London to meet this guy at, uh, you know, at, at this artificial intelligence um, uh, uh, organization, to bringing those people in, to sending our intelligence officers out into the private sector, into academia, um, to sort of absorb um, some of these things, non-hierarchical thinking, iconoclasm, risk-taking, um, that otherwise don't grow naturally inside the federal government. And then how do we make sure, right, in that, in that environment of doing all that, how do we make sure that we, at the end of the day, protect the privacy and civil liberties of Americans as the IC does more with technology, particularly open source information, right? I mean, that's a big deal. At the end of the day, we're trying to protect the Constitution here, not undermine it. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's, by the way, that's a subset of a much larger conversation. You know, I, every once in a while, as a member of the committee, somebody comes up to me and, you know, metaphorically throws up all over me about, you know, the fact that the NSA is tapping their phones or whatever it is they think is going on. And I usually say, look, the NSA is not tapping your phone. <laughs> uh, and let me explain to you who might be tapping your phone and under what conditions, et cetera. That's not always a, a successful conversation. But, you know, it's part of a larger issue because, boy, you, you think the government knows a lot about you. Let me introduce you to Facebook and Google and let's take a right. look at what they know about you. So it's part of a much larger conversation. One thing that my report that the committee subcommittee's report did, um, misunderstanding and misinformation thrives in an environment where there aren't lots of, you know, relationships and communication. So one of the things that I do as an overseer is I do spend a lot of time um, explaining under what conditions uh, an intelligence agency might look at somebody's uh, browser history. That somebody is almost certainly a non-U.S. citizen, not subject to uh, uh, you know constitutional protections. But under what conditions can the FBI look at mm -hmm. your browser history? And having that conversation um, is a real step in the right direction against. And by the way, it's not just the general public. I have senators. I kid you not. I have senators who will say that uh, you know the NSA is tapping people's phones. I mean, people who should really know better. <laughs> and so I just think having those conversations and establishing those relationships. Um, particularly in the world of people who are technologically savvy, um, is something we could do a lot better on. So, Congressman, maybe switching gears a little bit here to relations between Republicans and Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, which, as you know as well as anybody, has not been has not been perfect. And 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 I wonder what that looks like going forward, and how do we how do we get that right? Yeah. Boy, not been perfect. That's the that's the understatement of the, of the year. Um, I can only imagine someday when we have more time, uh, you'll need to tell me what it's like for somebody testifying in front of a committee that has become so horribly polarized. 
can um, do that actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can switch switch the mic here, and um, um, you know, here's here's the good news. I mean, we know why that happened, right? Uh, it was it was Donald Trump, and whichever side you take on this, um, you know, one side of that committee became an investigative operation against Donald Trump, and the other side became the defense of Donald Trump. That's about as impartially as I can say what happened. But that, of course, is not what that committee should be. Now, I'd like to tell you, and I do believe that that the Ukraine uh, situation that got this president impeached is not likely to be immediately repeated. And so maybe we don't have to sort of stumble over that um, problem uh, again. And, you know, it was remarkable the extent to which facts had nothing to do with that. Right. Um, right. You know, and this gets to the larger question we were talking earlier about a deep state. You know, if you explain to somebody what people actually do and what the facts are, that is very rarely persuasive. It's a, that's a whole other challenge. But I do think that um, a couple of things are going to happen. We're going to have a Democratic president, Joe Biden. So I am 100 percent confident in my prediction that my Republican friends are very soon going to rediscover the absolutely critical nature of oversight of the executive branch, which which right. they, they weren't necessarily <laughs> terribly committed to for the last four years. And I don't mean to be snide about that. The Democrats do that, too. But, you know, my Republican friends are going to all of a sudden be super interested in uh, in oversight. And that's going to help. That's going to help. Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to I have a lot of confidence in, you know, people like Avril Haines and, uh, you know, others that are being talked about um, at the, uh, you know, taking the helm here to be, you know, nonpartisan, to be apolitical, to be crisp and clear in their answers. And I think that's going to help in a big way too. So, so, so this, is a, this is a tough question, but do you think it's possible for the committee to get to where it needs to be with Congressman Schiff and Congressman Nunez leading their respective sides, given all the politics that have gone through the last four years? I know um, that's a tough question. <laughs> well, it's a it's a it's an awkward question for a bunch of reasons. But um, uh, um, look, there there's no denying that there is that there was a very substantial breakdown in that relationship, uh, and and quite frankly, not just in that relationship. But and I'm being as neutral as I can. I have very strong feelings that I'm that I'm not going to get overly partisan about in this conversation. But uh, and it wasn't just the ranking member and the uh, and the chairman. Um, you know, by and large, most members of the committee are pretty reasonable, pragmatic people. Really, I. I I believe that we don't have a lot of the more, you know, aggressive bomb throwers on the committee, but we just went through a really, really difficult time. And, um, and it's, 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 it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard to reestablish a comedy that we need. And it's, and it's really critical, you know, again, this is not, we're not playing around here. This is, this is really serious stuff. And I'd like to believe that, um, you know, if Adam and, and Devin uh, remain in, at the helm on the committee, um, that they sort of take a deep breath and recommit themselves to the mission of, 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 of the committee. But it's, uh, it's going to be very challenging. So, Congressman, we've talked about this a little bit. Maybe we just go a little bit deeper here. Your reaction so far to the Biden national security team? So, Avril Haines, um, Tony Blinken. Uh, the uh, national security advisor to be, I guess uh, those are the ones that we know. Um, these are some of the most understated, unflamboyant, um, deeply steeped in the culture of the agencies that they're being asked to run. Um, I feel very, very good about all of them. And uh, again, you know, they are people who uh, grew up inside, uh, in many cases, or at least, you know, spent years in the agencies mm-hmm. that they're being asked to run. 
uh, and I know them to be studiously apolitical. I mean, yes, I know that Tony Blinken was, uh, you know, sort of with Biden for a very long time, um, but but nonetheless, I know them to be inherently apolitical. So I feel I feel very very good about um, about the team that's been assembled so far. They're also all three of them are whip smart. They don't come much smarter than the three of them. Yeah, which is ninety nine percent of the time a good thing. Uh, the the the. I, I've reflected a lot on the Iraq war and some of the other strategic mistakes we've made. And, you know, when we talk about uh, people like Robert McNamara and, uh, you know, Secretary Wolfowitz, uh, sometimes being really, really, really smart uh, uh, can be a liability. But but nonetheless, what you say is absolutely right. I think I think really whip smart combined with a little bit of intellectual humility is that is the ticket. Yeah. And all three of them, all three of them who I know very, very well. Right. All three of them are humble. And all three of them have uh, deep integrity. And so, you know, I, I, I think perfect choices for the moment that we live in. Yeah, no, you know, it's going to be a challenge for me too. You know, I, I'm going to have to make a mental um, switch because we are humans um, and I'm going to, and I'm going to commit to my Republican friends uh, to be as skeptical and as tough uh, on uh, these people who are, uh, you know, associated with my party and who are my friends as I would be of uh, Rick Grinnell or John Ratcliffe or whoever the folks that were sort of temperamentally or at least sort of psychologically more easy to be tough overseer <laughs> towards. And, and by the way, that's one of the that's one of the answers to, uh, you know, how we bring comedy back to the committee is to always going back to our role, which is, you know, again, not to support or attack, but to be, um, you know, uh, constructively skeptical and critical of what it is we've been charged to oversee. And then I know it's not it's not official yet, but it looks certainly looks like it's headed in this direction. Your reaction to General Austin as secretary of defense. And particularly the concerns about civil military relations. Yeah, I don't I don't have a ton to say about that. Um, I'm not sort of steeped in the lore of a civilian secretary of defense. Um, I do believe that I voted for the waiver for General Mattis. Um, and so um, I, I'm going to need to sort of dig back into this. Um, there are folks who are expressing, you know, very serious concern about a general officer, of course, so soon assuming the civilian leadership. But um, I'm going to defer on that until I'm a little smarter. Okay. Question about question about what you expect from the IC leadership as it comes before the committee. You you touched on this a little bit, but you know what what do you want to 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 hear from them? What do you want to see from them, and in, in in how they deal with you and your colleagues? I I guess I'll answer that in in, in two ways. Um, uh, number one, um, and again, this is our offline conversation. There's no question in my mind that that testimony was probably colored by the warring that was occurring between the majority and the minority uh, in the last four years. Donald Trump will be gone. Different people will be in place. Um, I will want them to to sort of, as we need to do, move beyond uh, the Donald Trump wars that we've all experienced. Number two, um, if I were running the show, um, I alluded to this before, I, I would uh, demand that every hearing start uh, again, not with that cool video, which yes, I want to see. I want to see that cool video, but I need you to start with what's going wrong. What are the threats? What are the risks? 
and then we'll see the cool video about how good you are. Um, because again, oversight is hard. It really is hard. It's hard for reasons well beyond what we've discussed. This is a very technical area. It's a legally esoteric area. Uh, and I need you, Madam DNI, to tell me what you worry about and what risks there are out there um, so that we can be, first of all, not ambushed when something goes wrong, but secondly, thoughtful in helping you to address those risks. And that's a deeply unnatural thing. Back to what we were talking about uh, uh, risk. Nobody ever gets rewarded for making a mistake or coming in front of Congress and saying, we screwed this up. We need to change that culture. And again, if I were running the show, I would say start every hearing with what makes you nervous, where the risks are and what keeps you up at night. Congressman, I don't know if you were on the committee or not when when Leon Panetta was the director, but I thought Leon was the the role model, the ultimate role model for dealing with Congress because his approach was tell Congress what you think. Tell them everything you know. Tell them what you think. Be honest about what you've got right. Be honest about what you've got wrong, and you're going to find a friend. And that was my experience being his deputy was we had terrific relations with both uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee and the House Intelligence Committee because he took that approach. Um, so I wasn't on the committee when he was director. I came here in 09. Um, so uh, I did not experience that, but I'm not one bit surprised. And uh, shocker of shockers, of course, Leon Panetta was a member of Congress for many, right. <laughs> for many years. So right. he, uh, you know, he, he sort of knew how these creatures behave. Right. And, uh, and, and, and I think what you describe rings true. I, I, I see this every single day in hearings, you know, uh, immense precision in answers. And you can tell that that immense precision is driven by the absolute horror that you might say something that isn't perfectly accurate. Well, that's not actually a useful conversation. You're a person. I'm a person. We make mistakes. You know, if you don't know precisely, give, you know, give me, give me an estimate. Give me a sense of how confident you are around an estimate. You know, um, right. uh, so what you say is not at all surprising. I'm sorry I didn't get to experience uh, uh, Leon Panetta in that role. Um, Congressman, you have been absolutely terrific with your time. I just want to ask you one more question. What what do you want the American people to know about the women and the men who work in the intelligence community? I want the American public to know um, that uh, there's a reason why we have not suffered another attack of the magnitude, foreign attack of the magnitude of 9-11 and you don't know what those reasons are or how it worked or why it continues to work. But the answer is the women and men of the intelligence community and the women and men of the military. And that doesn't mean they always get it right. In fact, sometimes they get it spectacularly wrong, but in ways that you will never know, these people put their lives at risk in places you don't ever wanna be uh, for your safety. And they do get it wrong from time to time catastrophically wrong from time to time. Often, by the way, when they get it wrong, it's not because they're doing it wrong. It's because their political masters are getting things catastrophically wrong. I'm thinking of the famous slam dunk case for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But they need to know that those people are all those things and that they also, while they do make mistakes, they think really, really hard, not just about the law, but about the values that underlie that law, which again, doesn't mean they don't make mistakes, but they need to understand that that's the culture inside the intelligence community. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for your service on the committee. It's not a committee there where there's a lot of political benefits to being on it, but uh, certainly um, it benefits the national security of the United States. So 
Thank you very much for that. And thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Real, as, as always, pleasure talking with you. That was Congressman Jim Himes. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.